Welcome to the Industrial Automation Podcast, presented by The Reynolds Company, an authorized distributor for Rockwell Automation. The show that features conversations with the automation specialists from The Reynolds Company, explaining the evolving landscape of products, services, and solutions for industrial controls and automation. Now, on with the episode. Welcome back to Talking Industrial Automation. My name is Brad Freeman. In addition to hosting this podcast, I am part of the Reynolds Company's Automation Specialist Team. Today is the first in our new series on industrial networking and on the concepts of converged plant-wide Ethernet, also known as CPWE. To begin, we are covering the fundamentals of Ethernet networking. And in this first episode, Wayne will be speaking with Mike Masterson, who will introduce himself in just a moment. Together, they are starting at the ground level, taking a look at the physical media used in networks. For those listening in early June 2020, please do not forget about Rock Live. Check the show notes from last week's episode on how to access that online virtual event. That is all I have for announcements this week, so please enjoy this episode on Industrial Networking. Today, I'm joined by Mike Masterson, an automation specialist with the Reynolds Company in Houston. Hello, Mike. Hi, how are you doing, Wayne? Great. Hey, take a minute to just explain um, your role with the Reynolds Company and and your background. As an automation specialist with the Reynolds Company in Houston, I'm sort of a domain specialist for PLCs, controllers, control systems, HMI, and also the networks, the visualization software. So all those are groups sort of underneath my umbrella. My first 14 years of my career, I was dealing mainly in the telco area, which means I was dealing a lot with the rural phone companies. I got a lot of my networking experience from my first 14 years out in the industry, dealing with uh, the regional bell operating companies. And also I did a lot of commercial and industrial networking at that time also. So I've got a fair amount of exposure to um, networking and especially the media. So why would choosing network media be important can I just go buy a Cat5 cable off of Amazon and kind of be done with it? Sure, you can do that, but we need to make sure we put in the pro- the right media that fits the application we're using. A lot of our situations, we have to meet special fire codes, special fire ratings. We might be in areas where we might need to run a shielded cable. So we have to take all this into consideration before we pick what type of media or infrastructure we put in place for our networks. So there's no simple answer to that. But yes, can you buy a patch cord off Amazon? You certainly can, but is it going to be right for the application? That's the question. Yeah, so let's start with copper cable. So there, I know there's different categories such as five, six, and seven. Kind of explain what that means and why would one use one versus the other? For what we do, Wayne, we deal mainly in the Cat5 e Cat6 world, which means in in the copper world, we're dealing with Cat5e. The standard is 
350 megahertz of bandwidth at a, um, one gig. That's what we're shoot, shooting for. And that's based on 100 meters of cable. On CAT6, we're good up to 550 megahertz of bandwidth at a, a gigabit. So that's really where our controllers are living. Now, there are other categories. There is a, there's CAT6A that's coming out. There is CAT7 that's coming out. Both of those are 10 gig systems. And they're really made for the, the high-end layer 3 switches, for a lot of the, the fabric switching that we see up there. So they don't really come into play on, on the plant floor, but it has things evolved. We're going to start seeing cat six, a cat seven down the road, cat eight come out and we'll be utilizing those brief history though. There was a cat one, which was basically called pots cable, which is plain old telephone service cable. That was generally a four conductor, 22 gauge cable. Then there was a cat two, which is good for, uh, excuse me, cat three, which was good for 10 meg, Ethernet, then eventually Cat4, which was good for 20 meg token ring, then the Cat5e, or actually originally the Cat5 standard, which was good for 100 megabits. And then when it became Cat5, it was good for a gigabit. So things have evolved, things have changed. Uh, we've come a long way in the uh, 20 plus years I've, I've seen the category cables come out. That's interesting. I actually didn't realize there was Cats 1 through 4. Should, it would make sense to, to hear that. Well, a lot of it would keep make us discuss networks that don't exist anymore, like DuckNet and Token Ring. Uh, a lot of those standards were built around those, and now that they're not really dominant networking structures, we don't hear about them very often. And the world has moved on. So we see you know, a lot of harsh environments in the industrial space, a lot of electrical noise and heat and humidity and corrosives and whatnot. So what are some of our environmental concerns for installing network cables? Lots of things need to be taken into account, Wayne. One of the biggest things we run into on a daily basis is EMI, RFI, radiation coming from uh, a lot of the high power sources we deal with. A lot of times our PLCs are next to an MCC or a motor control center or a, a starter enclosure. And that creates a lot of induced noise, which might require us to use shielded cables. We also have to take into account the atmosphere. Are we in a highly corrosive atmosphere where we might have to use RJ45s that have a special protection against rust? Or quite often, we might need to use IP67 rated jacks or interfaces because we're in a high washdown area. So we need to take all those things into consideration when we pick our media for our networking. It kind of leads into fiber optics, I suppose, because we've seen a lot of increase in use of fiber optics on the plant floor. And I would assume some of that is because of noise, you know, noise reduction. Some other thoughts on why we see fiber being very popular now? Well, you nailed it. The first thing you said, fiber optics by its nature is is generally dielectric, which means it's non-conductive. Obviously, we could put shields on it and overall jackets like a BX aluminum, interlocked aluminum jacket, but the fiber itself is non-metallic. That makes things safer to pull. If we were to pull between buildings using copper cable, we'd have to put some sort of surge arrest or system in to place. Fiber optic takes that away from us. Also, fiber has the 
the ability to go a lot further on distances, obviously. Our multi-mode fiber, we're good for two kilometers on fiber using multi-mode fiber. And with single-mode fiber, we can go upwards of 80 kilometers dependent on the transfer receivers we're using. That's why fiber comes into play. But one of the largest driving forces is the, is just the fact that fiber is uh, getting a lot more inexpensive these days. Six strands of fiber is well under a dollar a foot. And 12 strands is only fractionally more expensive. So the media itself is less expensive. In fact, I, I will tell you the cable's cheap. The price is usually on the electronics that we need to power the transceivers to um, make the optical single go from point A to point B. Seems like in the past, the big scary part of fiber was the installation and the, and the termination, but that seems to have improved a lot over the years. Well, it's improved a lot and the tools have come down in price also. There are lots of people make mechanical connectors which are, are kind of crimp on connectors. In some applications, I, I don't recommend them for industrial environments, but even the epoxy-based connectors that we use now, they're much simpler to put on. You can you can epoxy a connector onto a fiber optic cable in under three minutes. But it does require the customer or the contractor to have the tooling to put it on and also have the knowledge on how to do it. If you don't do it on a regular basis, polishing a fiber optic connector is kind of an art form. You're not going to do it very well if you don't do it on a regular basis. So always pick someone who knows what they're doing and has experience on it. Certain things on the termination that have also come way down on price, like uh, fusion splicing, which I see in the field all the time these days, where we're basically taking a fiber optic patch cord that's cut in half and we're fusion splicing that onto the trunk cable. Fusion splicers now can be had for about $5,000. So you're seeing a lot more contractors investing in it. And even end users, we have offshore people that we sell um, fusion splicers to because it's just easier and faster for them. And, and they want to make sure they get a good connector that they don't feel they can get using a mechanical style fiber optic connector. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned multi-mode, single mode. Explain a little bit more about what the difference between those two are. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on actually how the the light moves down the uh, fiber optic cable, but I want to discuss the physical differences in it. The two main parts of a fiber optic cable are the core where the light actually travels and then the cladding, which is the glass that is around the core. The core is a more dense glass than the cladding. That causes refraction that keeps the light inside the cable. In multimode cable, the core is 62 0.5 microns in diameter. The cladding is actually 125 microns. Cladding is always going to be at 125 microns. Then there's also 50 micron multimode fiber. Again, 50 microns diameter. The cladding silhouette is at 125 microns. Then we get to single mode. The core is only 8.3 microns in diameter. So it's a much smaller core that we're tr the light's traveling down. Now, this is where you have the big dif differential between multimode and single mode fiber. Multimode traditionally uses LEDs as the light source, but Single mode requires lasers. Then you can always pick the laser you need for the distance. That's why quite often when you look at the transceivers used in our switches, you have differences on the single mode ones. Some might be rated for 10 or 15 kilometers, some for 30 kilometers. They go upwards of 80 kilometers based on what type of distance you're trying to travel. Obviously, as the distance increases, the price increases also. That's interesting. I didn't actually didn't realize uh, that single mode was a laser. So, uh, you, you talked about the transceiver, so that's another kind of a common question I get a lot is, is what is an SFP 
the F- SFP slot or SFP transceiver, but we do see them on all of our Stratix switches, as well as we, we start to see the SFPs coming to some of the industrial control system equipment, such as like the Flex IO, uh, the, the Flex 5000 IO family. Well, an SFP stands for small form factor pluggable. And what it was, it was the different switch manufacturers getting together and coming and say, we want to have a common type interface for our uplinks. So that's where they came up with the SFP slot. Now we're traditionally used to using it for fiber, but you got to remember you can, there are also copper based SFPs. I can put a single mode 30 kilometer SFP in one slot and put a one gig copper SFP in another. It gives an easy way to transition without having to do it through the switches. That's why I like the fact is Rockwell is actually starting to put the SFP connectors on their actual control hardware. That's going to help us reduce the cost of the networks because we'll be able to change the media directly at the controller. Yeah, that's actually pretty good. So just really one product to buy or one network card to buy that you can kind of use in any situation, be it copper, fiber, multi-mode, single mode. So that is very nice, very flexible. Right. And I, I want to make sure not all, tra- trans- even though they're all pretty much the same size, they're not all interchangeable. So you always need to do a little bit of research. Some manufacturers key their SFPs a little bit differently. You can find all this information pretty easy on the internet. Yeah. So if you're using the Rockwell automation products, you know, Rockwell does offer an SFP line. So you're safe there, right? So a Rockwell SFP will definitely work with a Rockwell network switch or industrial control products, which is, again, the Flex 5000. Correct. I would always recommend using the the switch manufacturer's SFP connectors instead of trying to find generic ones. It will make your troubleshooting a whole lot easier by doing that. That's good advice. So on the SFPs, it seems like we see the LC connector is a pretty popular connector for fiber optic cables. A little more about the different connectors that we might run into on the plant floor. Well, the LC connector was Bell Operating System companies getting together and saying, we want to have a standardized connector that mimics an RJ45 copper connector. So they want something about the same size that could have two fiber terminations, a transmit and receive, especially in our our multi-mode world. So at at the time, Corning came out with something called an MTRJ connector. AT&T came out with the LC connector. Eventually, the LC won out, and that's what's become the standard on the networking equipment. But if you go out into our plants right now, you'll see larger ferruled connectors, such as Sam Tom's or ST connectors or Sam Charlie's or SC connectors, which are pretty much the same connector. One one is a round bayonet style connector, and one is a square push-pull, but you'll notice the ferrule is exactly the same on the two connectors. Again, if we go through the history of fiber optic connectors, there's at least 40 or 50 different types of fiber optic connectors that have been used in, in the history. But right now, the standard is the LC connector. And when you get out in the field, some of the older plants that were using ST or SC connectors out in the field, it's easy enough to transition to our LC electronic electronics just by using patch cords to do the transitions there. That's good advice. Uh, just change the patch cord. Because we have seen that where customers are changing out switches. Now, of course, everything now is SFPs with the LC. So we have run into that a few times. There's absolutely nothing unusual about using an ST to LC patch cord in an, any environment. That That's a common everyday thing we run into. So we've kind of uh, done our homework and we chose the right cables and we, you know, for our network and and now we're going to install. So are there any tools to kind of help us verify, you know, once we've installed our cables, be it either copper or fiber, you know, that we did it correctly and our cables are quality 
check quality? Sure. There's a couple ways. We'll, we'll talk about fiber optics first. One of the first things you should always do after a fiber optic line's been installed is to test it with a power meter and light source. So we can actually see how much usable power is going from point A to point B. We need to have positive light power to make sure that our networks talk. So that's a simple test that will tell us whether we can actually transmit. But if we do need to do a little bit more detailed checking of the fiber optic cable, we can use something called an optical time domain refractometer, also called an OTDR, which is much easier to say, which will actually it's acting as a cable radar and will take a snapshot of every foot of the cable down to where you can actually, from a graph, be able to see where you have micro bends or you might have a crack connector. It will tell you that much detail and tell you exactly where the fiber has the fault. That would be the next step of fiber optic testing. Now on copper, there's a couple ways of doing it. If you just want to make sure that you can get a signal from point A to point B, there are media checkers that can do that. They will not certify the line. They'll tell you the length of your cable because we are dealing with on copper. We're only good for 100 meters. If we exceed the 100 meters, then we're not going to be certified for CAT5E. These more inexpensive testers will be able to tell you that. They'll also be able to tell you if you have cross pairs. Uh, maybe something wasn't wired correctly. Now, if you want to actually certify a CAT6 or a CAT5E or a CAT7 cable, there are cable certifiers. This is where we make a, a little jump in the price range. The original copper testers I was telling you about, they generally run in the three to four or $500 range. When you get into an actual certification type tester, those things run considerably more. They start probably around $5,000 and go on up. They give you the ability to actually certify to the standards of, of CAT5E. It will test the length. It will test the speed. It will test the attenuation. It'll test the attenuation to crosstalk ratio, which is really important because we always need a positive number there. If it goes negative, the, the system won't work. Those testers are a little bit more involved. They allow you to actually record your tests so you can put them into an Excel spreadsheet to hand your customer or keep for your own files. Those are the type of testers we run into on a regular basis. Now, a couple of our vendor partners that have these products, one of them is Fluke Networks and the other is Softing. They both make network certification devices or testers that we can use. It should be noted that uh, both of those guys, Fluke Networks and Softing, are Encompass partners with Rockwell Automation as well. So we do work with those guys. That is true. And on, on, on the lower end testers I was talking about, Fluke Networks also has those, but companies, um, also some of our vendors like Greenlee also have those capabilities and have those type testers also. The Reynolds company has access to multiple vendors that can provide test equipment for networks. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's going to be a wrap for this episode, Mike. I want to thank you again for joining us today and explaining physical media on the plant floor. Well, Wayne, thanks for the opportunity. I got to say this was really enjoyable and I'm looking forward to the next one. Excellent. Yeah. So this is part one in a series and we will continue on our way up the plant floor. So we'll, we'll do switches in our next episode and kind of keep working our way up through the various layers in the enterprise network. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Reynolds Company Industrial Automation Podcast. For support, please see our website, reynoldsonline.com. Again, we are the local Rockwell distributor for a large part of Texas and Louisiana. 
but for those outside of our area, please visit rockwellautomation.com and you can find your local distributor there. Thank you again and we'll see you in the next episode.